Well, without further ado, I suppose we're here tonight to listen to my good friend, pundit, gadfly, and all-around good fella, John Pavlovich. Would you welcome him, please? That'd be great. Thank you. Well, good evening. good evening. It is so good to see you. Thank you, my friend. Um, it's been a whirlwind the last uh, couple of days. We had a, uh, a book opening uh, last night in Raleigh, and I got home at midnight, and I had to leave at 6 this morning. And so I, I, I saw a blur of my family, and then I got here. And tonight I'll be doing a book signing at Parnassus Books at probably 15 minutes after this. So I won't be here immediately after. I apologize. I will sprint out of here. But I'm just so glad we could make it work that I could be here with my Grace Point family and with my Nashville friends. Uh, I was with most, some of you two years ago, almost two years ago this day, um, and it was a completely, another campus. It was a, um, you as a community had just come through being an affirming church and outwardly and some of the things that were happening around that. I was just entering this sort of online world and we sat and talked about what life might look like over the coming weeks and months. And we could have never imagined, probably for myself, for you as a community, or even this country, what life would look like today, right? A lot of things have happened. This community has switched campuses. I wrote a book. We had an election. And here we are. And I bet, if you're like me, you feel a heaviness. Uh, there's a lot of things that are piled on top of us right now as individuals, as faith communities. And I just wanted to, to honor that, to name that, to rest in that for one second. So just take a moment and just breathe. Let the pace of your heart slow down. Be at rest in this place. Realize that this is the only place you need to be right now exactly where you are. We are present together. And this gathering will never occur ever again just like this. And so we are going to alter the planet by being together tonight. So we honor that. Well, uh, a little bit about me if you don't know about me. Um, being a polarizing public figure talking about faith and politics and grief was not the plan. I can assure you, being a pastor was not the plan. The plan was I was going to be an art director and I was going to be an artist and I was going to have the children and a house and a car and a nice quiet life. And then I got a tap on the shoulder. And at the time I got the tap on the shoulder, I was in a church service, but I was basically a hopeful agnostic. I had drifted away from the religion of my childhood, and uh, a woman tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, I've been thinking about you and praying about you, and I think you'd be a great youth leader. And I looked at her, and I said, I know you. You're the current youth leader. <laughs> and she had paid her debt to society, and she was getting out. She was going to be free, and she wanted someone else to take her place. And I had all the qualifications they needed. I was young and willing. And that's pretty much it. You know, if they had looked into my qualifications, they would have found none. Uh, like I said, my faith was really unformed at the time or really in flux. But I said yes. I said yes, not thinking anything would happen other than I would hang out with some teenagers in a, you know, a moldy basement. And that's what I did at first. 
five or six kids in that basement, and I went down there, and it was a pivot point in my life. And I don't know if you know about those pivot points in your life when you can look back and see that everything changed. But I would have had no clue at the time, right? I was just in this moldy basement with Civil War era couches and a couple of teenagers. And I didn't know I was going to be a, a pastor. I didn't know I was going to be someone that people looked to for ideas about what God was like. I, was, I would have been oblivious to that at the time. But 10 years earlier, something happened with me. 10 years earlier, I was in college, and I like to say that when I was 18 years old, my heart first began to bleed. Because before that time, I was the boy in the bubble. I was raised in central New York, and I had a family that loved me, and I had a really good story. And I didn't really see diversity, and I didn't really understand poverty. And I had false stories about gay people. I had false stories about people of color, about atheists. And in all those false stories, I thought that the people that I was looking at were just slightly less deserving of the love of the big God that I had heard loved me. I couldn't name it as such, but I, I felt like I was somehow God's favorite compared to them because of those false stories I had heard. And so I get to Philadelphia, and I'm right in the heart of the city, and I'm just thrown down into diversity I've never seen and, and sort of poverty like I'd never experienced. And my, my heart began to expand. I began to see life as so much larger. And I was surrounded by people who weren't like me, and I was in this place of incredible variety. But fast forward 10 years, and I become a pastor. And I leave my secular career, and my wife and I and our son, Noah, who was three months at the time, we left both of our families in the Northeast to come down to Charlotte, North Carolina to work in a megachurch. Now, I don't know if you know how Italian families work. They don't like you to take the grandkids away, right? So my wife and I left all of our support, and we go to Charlotte, and I'm working in this megachurch. And if you could have seen me at that time, I was, I was living the dream as a pastor, I was super mega Christian pastor guy, right? Outwardly. But internally, I had run into two pieces of kryptonite. It was working for me for a while, but I ran into these sort of spiritual speed bumps, and I bet you've experienced these. The first one was I started to have theological questions. I started to have doubts about the inerrancy of Scripture and our theology toward LGBTQ people. I started to have doubts about the existence of hell. And I bet you know what that's like. I think if you're in this community or you've read my blog, you understand that tension. You know that searching. You felt that existential crisis when it feels like everything that you're standing on has become shaky. Do you know that feeling? And it's one thing to go through it as a pew sitter, as a civilian Christian in a church. But it's another thing to go through it as a minister, as a pastoral leader, as someone who's supposed to stand up in front of people every day and say, this is the voice of God. This is what God desires of you. And I started to feel a tension between the person that I felt like I was supposed to be as I followed this Jesus, as I studied, as I learned, and the person that I was expected to be as a pastor. And the further these two people became, the more tension it created in me. 
Now, that was one piece of kryptonite for super pastor. But the other piece of kryptonite was I started to get to know people who weren't like me. And I started to hear stories that were not like my story. People whose experience of Christianity or the church or of America were far different from my own. And as I heard those stories, people told me, the church has hurt me. The church has excluded me. It feels like Christians are actively moving against me. And as I started to hear those stories, it began to profoundly bother me. Now the word compassion, the word compassion comes from a a word, the word bowels. Because the idea was that you would be so internally disturbed by the pain of another person that it would alter how you felt. That's why it's not inaccurate when we say that someone's story of suffering moves us. Because we're moved in our, in our gut. And so I always tell people I began to have a bowel movement over these stories. I began to be internally disturbed when people told me the church that you're a part of, the Christianity that you represent, is causing me pain. And it started to break my heart. And I started to realize I was part of that toxicity. I was part of that systemic injustice, even if I didn't mean to be. So here's this ever-widening chasm between organized religion and my now very disorganized spirituality. You know what that feels like? When you feel like there's this thing and then there's you. And this thing and you don't seem to mesh all the time. So I had a choice. I could take these theological questions and I could stop asking them. I could put them to the side. I could let those nagging questions dissolve away and just deal with the surface stuff and just play the part. Or I could lean into those questions and I could ask them. I could study and I could ask my community those questions. And then I could take those stories and I could choose to either stop listening to them I could stop listening to what those stories were telling me about marginalized people and about the church, or I could lean into those questions and ask them more loudly. I chose the latter in both of those cases. I chose to lean in and to ask those things in a louder way. So that's why five months after we arrived at our new home of Raleigh, North Carolina, my pastor at the time, my boss, said, John, I want you to take a vacation. And I said, great, when do I start? And he said, today. I said, when do I come back? He says, you don't. Because he said, you don't fit here. And he was right. I always tell people, you know, I didn't hear the voice of God telling me to leave. It didn't sound like Morgan Freeman. It wasn't in my quiet time. It was at a rickety Starbucks table and my pastor's voice saying, you're fired. And so that was 1,200 days ago. And I, I got up in that, from that table and it was devastating. And it was earth-shaking. And it was faith-jostling. But I realized I'd been given a gift. I now could ask anything and I could say everything. I no longer had a faith that was dependent on a community. I didn't have to represent anyone else's spirituality but my own. I could ask all those questions that I was terrified to ask. 
And you know what it's like when you can ask anything and say everything, whether it's in your spiritual life or in your marriage or in your family or in your career. When you can ask anything and say everything and know that it's okay, you never want to give that up. And so I started asking those questions. And the questions were, did I still want to be a Christian? Did I still want to be a pastor? Did I still want to be a part of this church thing? And if I did want to still call myself a Christian, what did that even mean to me anymore? And as importantly, what kind of a community did I see myself in? So that's the work I've been doing in a very public way for the past couple of years, is asking anything, saying everything, and trying to excavate Jesus from all the stuff that he is buried in that is keeping me from really seeing who he is. Now when you do that, I don't know if you know this, when you begin to ask questions to the church, of the church, the church doesn't enjoy that. When you ask the system why it is the way it is, people in the system aren't comfortable with that. Or when you begin to expand the table of your hospitality, it's going to cause conflict, it's going to cause turbulence. And I don't know if you've ever experienced turbulence because of the way that you see Jesus, but I'm guessing that if you're here, you have. Amen? I started to try to think about, as I was going through this faith shift, but also this career shift, I was going back to Jesus. I said, let me just get all this noise out, and let me just sit with Jesus. And I started to see over the course of the scriptures and all the gospels, Jesus' table ministry. You see over and over that Jesus meets with people for a meal. He uses the act of breaking bread. The act of sharing a meal to let people know that they're seen and they're heard and that, they val- that they're valued. And see, what was startling to me as I looked at those stories was the diversity of Jesus' table. He meets with priests and with prostitutes. He meets with the religious elite and the street rabble, right? He meets with his disciples and he dines with his adversaries. And I don't know about you, but I am not particularly interested in having a meal with my adversaries. I have coffee with them. Right? Coffee you can get out of. We got to go through a meal with people. That gets really ugly, right? Imagine how that's waiting for a check and you're being berated. Right after I got fired, a friend said, can I have lunch with you? And I thought he was going to console me. And he sat down and he put a concordance down and a couple different Bible translations. And I thought, this is going to be a long meal. And That's what Jesus did. He meets with this diverse group of people. And because Jesus' table invitation was so diverse, that caused a problem for him. Right? You see in the scriptures, the religious elite are saying, this guy, he eats with the sinners. He eats with the people of the street. And it's not written in the scriptures. But I can imagine that the people in the gutter, the people that Jesus spent so much time with, resented Jesus for dining with the religious people, with those who were oppressing them. And so this bigger table that I see Jesus building, it causes him turbulence, and it's going to cause you turbulence. So I I grew up in a fairly traditional Italian family, and we had a house growing up, but we didn't need the house. The house was just an expensive, elaborate covering for the kitchen, right? Right? I mean, that's the only place we lived. That is where we became a family. Around that table, we talked and we gossiped and we argued and we entertained and we laughed and we joked 
and we cried and we ate and we ate and we ate. But that was the magic place where I could sit and know that I had a spot and I just watched it unfold every night. That was the simmering heart of our family. I bet you understand what that's like. And it was great because on really special days, we would upgrade from the kitchen table to the dining room table, right? Moving on up. We'd get over there and we'd get, and then we'd be with this bigger table. But then something better would happen on even more exciting days when we had a larger group of people. My father would actually do construction. He would go into the garage and he would bring out these two big slabs of wood and he'd bring them in and we'd grab either end of the table and we would slide it open and he would throw those pieces of wood in and we would literally expand the table and put more chairs in to welcome more people. This is what Jesus calls the people of Jesus to do, to be table expanders, to be those who pull up chairs for those who are not yet welcome. And that is what you're doing here. That is what my Grace Point friends are doing. This is what those who come through the blog are doing. We're trying to see who is not yet welcome, who is not yet seen and heard and loved, and how can I make them feel that way? And one of the most powerful images of Jesus' table gathering is recorded by all four of the biographers of Jesus. And I think we're going to share this story now. It's going to be up on screen, and I'm going to read it along with you. It says, as soon as Jesus heard the news about John, his friend's passing, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I want you to stop there. He had compassion on the crowd. He was tired. He wanted to be alone. He went to a solitary place. But when he saw the need, his first response was not contempt and not inconvenience. It was compassion. And so he healed them. And that evening the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy food themselves. But Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. But we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here, he said. Then he told the people to sit down on the grass, and Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, and he looked up toward heaven, and he blessed them. And then breaking the loaves into pieces, he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. And they all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. About 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and children. So Jesus is tired and he wants to be alone and he sees the need and he responds with compassion and he feeds the multitude. And now most of us, when we heard this story, if we heard it as Christians in a more traditional mindset or a more orthodox setting, we would wrestle with this story and we would think about, we'd get tripped up. We'd get tripped up by the mechanism of the miracle. I often used to get tripped up. I'm thinking, how did he take the bread and the fish? And how does that work? How do you exponentially increase all that food? But what we can do as we come to a more progressive place or as we come to a place where we are trying to expand our understanding of these stories, we can see this not as a how story, but as a who and a why story. We see what was happening. What can this tell us about the character of God? And see, what we see is that Jesus feeds people. It's extraordinary. It's so simple. But that's what he does. He sees the need of people, and he meets that need. And what's striking is not what Jesus does, but what he doesn't do. He doesn't pull everyone together 
and poll them and find out their political affiliations and their religious traditions and he doesn't see what they've been doing with their social lives and he doesn't compare them to see who's worthy of being fed. Their hunger and his compassion makes them worthy. Is this our heart for people, to see them not as having to prove themselves worthy of our hospitality, but can we see them as worthy simply because they have needs that need to be met? So I began thinking about how could we create these communities? How could we have a church that reflects the table of Jesus? And if you read the book, you can, you'll read these things. I'll just go through them quickly. There are four sort of legs of this table that I was seeing in the stories of Jesus. And the first was radical hospitality. And radical hospitality simply means you get the Italian mother's welcome. You are pummeled with affection and food, right? See, when, when you're with someone who, you know that when you're with someone who celebrates you, and you know when you're with someone who tolerates you, and you know when you're with someone who doesn't want you there, and no one has to tell you, right, any of those, because you just feel them. What would it be like if we had faith communities where people felt fully celebrated as they were, so that radical hospitality? The second one is total authenticity. Not partial authenticity. See, often in our faith communities and around Christians, we feel like, I can share this part of myself, that will sort of ensconce me in the community, but if I share this, that's probably going to push me to the periphery. That's probably going to be too out there or too weird or too something. And so we edit ourselves. And I was editing myself as a pastor, and I thought, what if we had a community that we said, this is me, and I know it's going to be okay. I know there are no deal breakers in me. The third thing was messy diversity. See, every church you'll ever encounter, they want diversity. Every church you've ever been to is a welcoming church until you need to be welcomed. See, what happens is there is a diversity that that community might be comfortable with, but there are, if, if someone is too to the center or too left or too right or they're too messy or they're too loud or they're too abrasive, they no longer feel welcomed. But what if we could have a diversity that was fully uncomfortable, where we just walked in and we said, whatever the world looks like, it looks like this community. So you've got this radical hospitality Total authenticity and true diversity. And the fourth one, which is so hard for us, agenda-free relationships. How many of you, just put up your hand if you were raised as a Christian, a fairly traditional Christian. Just put up your hand. Or evangelical. Yeah, see, what, what we learn is relationship is a tool for evangelism. It's not always spoken that way, but as a pastor, I would walk and see students coming into our youth group. And I was thinking, who don't I know yet so that I can get them out of hell? And so my relationship was always subtly with an agenda. I wanted to fix them or change them or I wanted to make sure they prayed the prayer. And I never received people fully the way I did when I was back in Philadelphia. And what I realized was I was a better person before I was a pastor and that grieved me. But what if we could have relationships with people where we just sit with them and we hear their stories and we just let those stories speak for themselves and not feel compelled to edit those stories or to alter them. So that was the bigger table in my head. Radical hospitality, total authenticity, true diversity, and agenda-free relationships. And I've been doing this for two years now. And I know this table is necessary 
more than ever, but I'm a little bit more worried that it's possible than I was when I started this journey. Because I see in the world, I see in us, there's a cruelty that seems to be trending. I see a poverty of empathy. And if we lose empathy, we've lost the heart of Christ. If we look at people and see contempt, we've lost Jesus. So compassion has to be the thing that drives us. We have to be moved internally by people's stories. But there's a collateral damage that comes with this. I know you felt it. When you feel deeply, when people's wounds wound you, that's a difficult spot to be in. I know, I know that's who Pastor Stan is. I know that's who many of you are. That's who I try to be. I try to be wounded on behalf of other people so that I never forget that some people are hurting when I'm not. So can we find this place? Can we find this place where we meet right where we are and we just say, whatever you are, whoever you are, however you are, it's right, it's good, it's beautiful, and I'm going to sit with you and we're going to dine with Jesus in it. And I'm trying to do this while not getting overwhelmed with the other side of compassion, with contempt, because this is hard work. When you do what I do publicly, you become the line around which people stand to argue with one another. Stan knows that. If you've ever been a leader of any kind, you say a few words or you write a few words and people get around to either encourage you or discourage you or amen you or condemn you. And that's what happens and that's what our whole lives are right now. So how can we be a people who kind of cut through that with some sort of sense of treating the other person as they're uh, inherently valuable, inherently beautiful? When we try to expand the table, we hit an intersection of the people who are not yet welcome at the table and those who are welcome and who are being hoarders of the table. When we try to expand the table, we meet that intersection of the people who are marginalized and the people who are telling them they're not welcome. So I think as we do this work, friends, we have to have an urgency. We have to have an urgency that we didn't have before, that maybe we didn't have a year ago or two years ago. Two years ago, I sat in the back room with Stan before I came out, and we were talking about this idea of what the church could be, and he said, we have to make this work in a local church. We have to make it work in a local community, or it's just this theoretical stuff, right? And there's an urgency now to show the world that it can happen, that it is possible. And I know it's hard work, and I know it's painful, and I know some of you aren't even connected to local faith communities, and you're feeling like you're just out there. And I want to encourage you to keep going. I want to encourage you to do that work, not just for you, but for the people who are not in this room, who read my blog every day and say, there's no one around me who understands me. I'm completely alone. And what a church like this does or what the people like this do is we show people visibly, yes, I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. And the Jesus I hear probably is real. So we have to become compassionate activists. We have to be people who take this internal unrest and turn it into something visible. 
I know activism probably scares you. Some of you, it makes you feel like activism means I'm going to stand in the street with a sign and yell at some other people with different signs. But that's not all it means. See, activism is so much richer than that. It's so much more complex and it's so much more Christian than that. Activism is simply using your privilege and your resources and your good fortune and your circle of influence to speak on behalf of those who have less of those things. That's your job, to take whatever it is that you have that other people don't have and leverage it on their behalf. And I tell my, my church, activism is just the opposite of inactivism, and nobody wants an inactive faith. No one is following Jesus so that, that, does, that it does nothing in their lives, right? So I need you to be thinking about what is your personal activism how does that manifest in your life? And then what is the activism that your faith community is going to be engaged in? For some of you, personal activism could be really simple. You know how you have conversations with family members right now and you get to a point in the conversation and you say, I got to back away from this because I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> well, maybe instead of walking away, you take a couple steps forward and you stay in that conversation as difficult as it is so that you can speak words to them that they may need spoken to them. Or if you have that friend on Facebook and, and they're posting a meme or an image that is an incorrect stereotype of a person of color, maybe instead of rolling your eyes at them or unfriending them, maybe you comment why you believe this is an inappropriate stereotype of a human being made in the image of God. Or maybe you say, here's someone who is nothing like me. I'm going to sit and listen to their story, and I'm going to find the redemptive spot in their story. I'm going to find the beauty in their story because that's what Christ did. Maybe I'm going to be a story learner. Or activism for you may be standing in the street with a sign because people need to do that too. See, what I know about compassionate activists who came in the name of Jesus They've changed the world that we have walked into. If not for compassionate activists working in the name and the heart of Jesus, there are people in this room who wouldn't be able to vote right now. There are people in this room who wouldn't have autonomy over their own bodies. There are people here who would not be free if not for people who had the heart of Christ, who dared to show the world what people with the heart of Christ do. Activism and compassion, it's, it's difficult because it's costly. It's supposed to be. See, compassion and activism, they expend us on behalf of other people. They, they give up resources of time or money or rest so that we can do something on behalf of another person. Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan. You may know it, but there's a guy on the side of the road, right? And he's, he's beaten and he's lying there wounded. And it says that the priest walks by and just keeps going because he was busy. He had things to do. And the religious person walks by and does nothing because he had things to do. And the Samaritan, who is a despised person, who is ethnically unpure, he walks by and he stops and he cares for the man. But I bet the Samaritan had something to do that day too. But we have to be the people who are willing to be inconvenienced by the hurt of others. I told my church, I said, listen, they're, they're largely a, a group of, of white people. And I said, if you're waiting for the time when the need of a marginalized person outweighs your inconvenience at helping them, that time is coming gone. 
And we know how heavy life is, even on our best days, friends. And so we, the people who are striving to see this Jesus, we have to move with urgency on behalf of those who are living with urgency because they have no other choice. So this is your job, this is your task, to be the people of the bigger table, to be the expectation-defying Christians that the world needs. It's a difficult job, it's a painful job, but it is a beautiful, redemptive, God-glorifying job, and I just wanted to encourage you today to keep going. Keep those eyes of compassion Try not to see the crowd with contempt. Keep being burdened by the stories of other people and then endeavor to move into those stories and to alter those stories. This is the heart of Christ. This is the table he sets. May it be ours. Amen. Thanks. Yes, and I'm hoping if they pull me over, I'll just give them the pastor. You know, if I'm driving a little too fast, they'll give me pastor exemption, but we'll be good. Yeah, that's that's, that's lovely. It doesn't work around here too much. I don't think it would. Not with my accent. No, no, especially with that. Um, so you're going to have to get out of here. Thanks for coming early and signing books. Oh, pleasure to meet Yeah, if you're available, come over to Parnassus. I, I'm fearful that I'll be sitting at a table with no one else, and that would be really odd. <laughs> um, for those that are not immediately going, we want to welcome everyone. We've got yes. a potluck tonight. We're potluck people. So mm. we, we took seriously that whole idea of the table and expanding the table. Beautiful. So you guys come back and uh, eat with us tonight if you would like. Awesome. All right, let's take some questions. Love it. Uh, thanks for everything you do, oh, and thank you, uh, thanks for the message. It was beautiful, thank you. and thanks for sticking your neck out. Um, it's not the easiest thing to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Who has been stewing to ask John a, a question? Anyone? All right. Stand up and holler it loud. The only thing that Christians can do is to hold up the life of Jesus as a mirror to the church and say, does this look like you? And whether it's this administration or whether it's a a denomination, all we can do is keep seeking out what that voice of Jesus is and what that looks like and say, this is what we have to look like. And it's a frustration when people, many people look to as that's what the people of Jesus are, or that's how people of Jesus operate. My job is to stand and say, I don't think that's the case. Um, we all do that in small ways, though. We don't all, you know, someone said to me uh, at the Wild Goose, came up to me, he goes, you know, I've been reading your writing for a long time, and after hearing you speak today, I don't think you're as much of a jerk as I thought you were from your writing. <laughs> that was actually Stan, which was really surprising. <laughs> but, but we don't all have to be you know, bloggers or pastors who are making waves. 
it's speaking those words to a group of people, your circle of influence, your table of people who may have a distorted understanding of what Jesus is and say, this is, I think, the heart of Christ. And that's all we can do. We can't screen people into belief and we can't argue them into being compassionate people. We've just got to be, we've got to show them what that looks like. Yeah, and for me, uh, we were talking about the holidays and dealing with these schisms. Um, I, I was at a hotel. I, I think I may have shared this with some of you before. I, w I was at a uh, conference, and I was speaking to a transgender teenager about this idea of the table. And right outside the window was a man with a sign saying that she was going to hell. We called him Sign Guy for the moment. And she said, how do I deal with him? And I said, the only thing we can do is realize that right now sign guy believes he's doing exactly what we're doing he's trying to listen for the voice of God and he's trying to be faithful to the voice that he hears now we may see his voice as destructive or we may see his actions as violent but we have to find some compassion that he believes that that's what God wants him to do because it's hard to argue with God when you've heard a voice for 40 years telling you that this is what a Christian is or this is the fear that you're supposed to have because of this God it's hard to unlearn that so I balance that out with, I don't want to expose someone I love to further damage, right? So this diversity of the table, it's not, we don't have fellowship with violence, right? We, we try to love people well, but we realize there are some times when we're going to have to make geographic space from those people to give peace to ourselves. So you may need to opt out of the family gathering. You may need to take a breath from this to restore the relationship that will come later. It may be too raw. It may be too tumultuous right now. Um, I'm having to deal with that in my family. Um, there's no easy way to do it, though, sadly. Somebody else? Steve. The only way I can tell people is I, I wrote a, the first blog post that, that I had that went viral is called If I Have Gay Children. And I wrote it a couple of weeks after I was fired. At that moment, there was nothing strategic about it, but what I realized was that those words were released into the world and those words did work that I could never have imagined them doing. And so what I want people to understand is those words and those movements, they are going to send ripples into the world in ways you can't imagine. And people are around you right now saying, I wish somebody felt this way or I wish somebody really cared about me. And when you do that, 
It changes everything for them. I always tell people, people are hanging by a thread and you get to be that thread by just being a decent person or loving them the way you feel called to love. Um, Stored up compassion is rather worthless. You know, that's what we do. We feel good about ourselves for feeling bad. You ever see something and you go, oh, that's terrible. Okay, we move on. Well, that does nothing. So I'm going to say that's terrible and I'm going to move toward the terrible. Yeah, I don't know if I can say this here, but wine and chocolate. Um, No, for me, I have to, Jesus did something, and we saw it in the story. It said he withdrew to a solitary place to pray. And then when he saw the crowd, he had compassion. If we, all we do is engage, we're uh, going to become hardened. So we have to withdraw, engage, and withdraw and engage so that we still see people with the eyes of Christ. So you have to, you have to. It seems like there's an urgency every second, and there is. There's terrible stuff happening. We have to go, I'm going to pass it on to somebody else. I'm going to trust that God is still working even when I'm not on the case. And so you have to pull, even for my sanity, there are days when I say, you know what? I'm stepping away, and I may feel irresponsible, but I'm not. I'm honoring the best things in my life, the closest things in my life. Um, You have to be ruthless in caring for yourself right now. The collateral damage of what we're trying to do is incredible. You know, and that's why ministry is fraught with addiction and caregiving is fraught with, you know, depression because of the wear and tear of that stuff. It's like Donahue. I know you remember that because you said that. You're old like me. Yes. And really, people say, John, you're brave, or John, you're this. I just say, um, this is decency, and this is how we're supposed to live. So it's not really, you know, when my blog went viral, my wife said, how come every time you say nothing, people seem to, like, gravitate toward it? Like you say, pastor would love his child, you know, news at 11. Like, why is that newsworthy coming from a pastor? And I think that's for people to, to understand that that's because they've heard so many voices that are not that voice. And so you as a believer, as a person of faith, as someone seeking the heart of Jesus, you get to be part of that, that different voice in their heads. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to be an encouragement. Sudden, it's been so clear, especially on Facebook, 
that I've just been unfriending people. And you taught me something tonight, and I'm going to do this when I get home. All those people that I've unfriended just because I can't take it anymore, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell them tonight that I love every one of them, mm. that I will respect their views, even though they're different than mine. But you have given me the courage to do that tonight because I just wanted to run away from it and not deal with it. So thank you. Thank that. you. Thank I you. I appreciate that, John. It's, um, again, the difficult part about doing that is we don't, in, in what I do, trying to make peace with someone who may have a political view or a theological view, I don't want to but send that a signal to someone else who's been marginalized and say, why are you now making peace with that? So there's a tension there that Jesus is always going to cause me. He's never going to make my life easy. Darn it all. I'm, I'm speaking at a lot of churches who are saying we're trying to do this work now. Um, they, they're realizing that they can't avoid it any longer and they're either going to be, they're going to, everyone's going to leave and they're going to be left with only this core of people or they're going to have to try to really work this thing out. So I'm speaking at a lot of churches who this is really uncomfortable for, far more, less comfortable than it might even be for this community as, as hard as it is for you. Um, yeah. Like evangelical. Yeah, and, and you know, they, a lot of them will tell me, we didn't know if we should invite you. And I'm thinking, well, that's a great way to start off the conversation. I'm going to up my fee because of that. But, no, but you know that, great, that wrestling means that there have been difficult conversations that have happened before your arrival. So um, that's the thing, the bigger table, it can't be just from the center to the left of me. It's got to be from the left and the right of me. And that's the hardest thing to do. We've got time for one or two more. You mentioned that uh, trending cruelty that you see that has you more worried now mm. than a couple years ago when you started, um, and that we have to find a way to kind of cut through some of that. Uh, what are some of the key practices? You mentioned withdrawing, um, but at some point, you kind of have to play the role of the prophet, and you do that very well. Yeah. Uh, for us, who are, maybe don't have that platform. Yeah. Well, we know that one voice of Christianity has been loud for a long time and it's well established so it's organized and it has resources and it has a way to do what it does. Progressive Christianity does not yet have those mechanisms and so it's going to take people like yourselves saying, I'm not just going to listen to these messages and walk out. I'm going to sit with the people around me and say, okay, let's get 10 of us together and say, what matters to us? What are we passionate about? Because you start there and then you get 15 and then you get 30, but we need to figure out how to be a visible presence in the world because there are a lot of people who don't even know that churches like this exist or that pastors like Stan or like speakers like myself and we've got to figure out how to let them know. I mean, just the fact that if you came here and you weren't part of this community, I'm amazed that, you're, that you exist. I'm thrilled that you're not a bot on my blog. Like you're flesh and blood and now you can go and leave and do something transformative. That's what you get to do. It's awesome. One more time for John Patton. Hey, thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother.